Hello and welcome to the Rocky Peak Young Adults Podcast. We meet Sunday nights at 7.30 at the church at Rocky Peak. For info on upcoming events, find us on Instagram at rpyoungadults. Enjoy the message. Wow, man, that was the first time I saw that. Man, I am, uh, we needed to have tissue out on the tables this week. So that was great. That was great. Can we please thank our media team for making that excellent video? And can we please thank all the brave people who shared their story because it's so valuable and so relatable. So valuable, so relatable. If this is your first time, my name is Kelly McCoy. I am the proud pastor of RPYA. But really, I just get to partner with great people uh, doing ministry uh, in, in the Valley. So thank you for letting me be a part of that journey. Um, we are in our last RPYA of the year. Somebody say, oh, I know, I know. But it's only going to get better because in 2019, there's going to be lots of lots of great things. In fact, somebody said, welcome home, that like, that the RPY is a place where they can call home. And I love that because um, that's exactly what we're going to talk about the next series starting in January. The series is called Welcome Home because we want this to feel like a place that you can call home. And this is your living room and you're about to eat the Bible. Wait, that's weird. Uh, <laughs> No, but, you know, we are going to be inspired by God's word, and that is actually going to give us sustenance to carry out through the week. And so I, I hope that this place can be a home for you, whether you believe the things we believe or not, because this is a place you can belong no matter what you believe. And our goal and our heart is that you would leave here transformed, looking more like Jesus than once you came. Amen? Amen. Amen. You know, um, resumes are kind of interesting. Resumes are interesting. Have you, anybody had to write a resume recently, like go for a job, and you're like, um, I had a dog sitting company once, and you try to zhuzh it up, and you're like, yes, I w- worked for a pet clinic, you know, like whatever you did. Um, or, or, you know, you, you mowed a lawn, and you're like, yes, I specialize in agriculture. Like, like whatever. Like sometimes we try to zhuzh up. We try to like, you know, church up our uh, resume so, so that we can give a, a certain impression of who we are, maybe a little bit better than who we are. But you know someone's telling the truth when they don't even try. Um, I, got a, I found a couple funny resumes online. And uh, the first one is by Jaharta, Jahatara. And so she didn't even try. Next one. Uh, <laughs> the next resume is uh, a guy who might be trying a little too hard but doesn't really know what he's doing. All right, next one. And this guy is definitely telling the truth. I don't know if you can tell, but he says a couple things. But the, f- the last one, he, I mean, this is... This is a resume. This is a resume. I'll read it for you in case you can't read it. It says, he was a marijuana dealer and nefarious dude, all caps. Um, There's five things he learned. The first one he learned, he learned intuitive understanding of supply and demand, capital supply, demand. Um, He's good with money, apparently. He ran his own delivery service. He had consistent clientele with high customer service satisfaction. I don't know what he means by high. He gained intimate access to several very exclusive county jails. Mm. And the last thing, learned a valuable lesson, was his last thing he wrote. Learned a valuable lesson. All right, do you think this guy is lying? (laughs) Right, why don't you think he's lying? Because it's sad, right? Somebody say, because it's sad and pathetic. All right, we're good. We, we, can, we can take that down. Um, 
The interesting thing about a resume, especially bad ones, is that you can actually trust the bad ones. Because that guy is definitely not lying. So when somebody is like, you know, I, I think, first of all, you can trust it, but he's probably not really self-aware either. And the interesting thing about a bad resume like the nefarious dude and how we can trust that he's not lying is because it's not really that impressive. Right? And it's a resume meant to impress. And in the ancient world, if Jesus were to give you a resume, do you think you would be impressed? No, you wouldn't be impressed because the type of resumes they gave in the first century, they weren't resumes. They were genealogies because people couldn't like live the American or the Israeli dream and like go to school and get a job and and, like do things. Right. You were born in the class that you were born in and you couldn't go beyond, you know, whether you are a peasant or you're royalty. You just don't go beyond that. And so people were really guarded about their genealogies. Because people made judgments about them. And if this Jesus is going to be the king of the Jews, you would think you would see a lot of royalty in his genealogy. But Matthew, his disciple, he didn't pull punches. See, in the beginning of Matthew chapter 1 is the beginning of the Christmas story. And the Christmas story does not begin (laughs) with a baby in a manger. (gasps) Relax, guys. It actually begins with a genealogy. And a lot of times when we read the story of Christmas, we skip that part because it's a bunch of names we can't even pronounce. We're like, all right, cool. Let's get to the action. Let's get to Herod. Let's get to the camels. Let's get to the angels. Let's get get to Santa Claus. Like, Like, we try to get to the action, but we skip probably one of the most important apologetic pieces when it comes to the evidence of a real life historical Jesus. So today we're going to look at this resume from Jesus, and you get to decide whether or not you're going to believe in this. But there's two things that you need to understand about this genealogy. This also tells us something about you. Because if people like this can end up in his family, people like us can too. It's true. You you guys know what I'm talking about. So let's look at Matthew chapter 1. Verse 1, so if you have your Bible, apps, or Google, you can just type in Matthew 1, colon, 1, or or 1 through uh, 14, 1 through 14. But I'll go ahead and read it for you if you just want to just sit and listen. It's okay. So Matthew, just to give you a little bit of backstory, Matthew also, his old name was Levi. He was was a a Jewish kid who uh, pretty much gave up his Judaism and his family and his any attempt uh, to be religious, and he became a tax collector. Jesus one day showed up, saw this tax collector, paid the fee, and said, hey, wait a minute. I can use a guy like you. You want to come and follow me? And at that moment, Levi, also known as Matthew, dropped his tax collecting bucket and started following Jesus. This is the same Matthew that is writing in the New Testament. And he starts Jesus' story off not with a, in a land far, far away. He doesn't say that. This is not a fairy tale. This is not good advice. This is technically, we call this good news. That's right. So this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah. 
pause. You guys may not know who Jacob is, but Jacob is one fun guy. See, Jacob, he was in love with a girl named Rachel. He saw her far, far away, and she was beautiful. Can we get 10 more minutes on that clock? Because I'm going to go way over. So he was in love with Rachel. He was in love with Rachel, and Rachel was a hottie. Let me tell you that. And so instead of going to Rachel and be like, hey, you're a hottie. Let's get married. He goes to Rachel's father, and he says, uh, Rachel's dad, hey, dad, I really like Rachel. You know, I'm, you know, Jacob, yeah, I'm kind of a big deal. You know, Abraham's like my, my great-granddad. Can I marry your daughter, Rachel? And the dad's like, sure, you can marry my daughter, Rachel, but you just need to work for seven years in my field. And for Jacob, he's in love. He's like, seven years, no problem, right? He's got chutzpah. So he goes and he works for Jacob's dad or for for Rachel's dad for seven years. And finally, seven years comes around and he's ready to get married. And they're at the wedding. And she's got a veil over her face, and she looks beautiful, but you can't really see her because it's modest cu- culture. So uh, they're at the, the thing. They put the rings on. They say the vows, and there's a tent because most marriages in first century Judea were consummated at the wedding. Awkward. All right, so they go, and they consummate at the wedding, right? They fall asleep, wake up next day. Rachel is not there. It's not Rachel. It's Rachel's ugly sister, (laughs) Leah, right? So Rachel's ugly sister doesn't get married to Jacob. Jacob gets duped. It's Leah, and the Bible says Leah is ugly. The reason why I know Leah is ugly because the Bible says she had soft eyes, which means she had a great personality. So, So Jacob ends up marrying this unattractive woman, and then that is one of the great, 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 great to the 42nd power, 42nd power, grandmothers, fortitude. Oh, by the way, I'm going to make up a bunch of words today, FYI. We're going there. So just want you to know, Jacob and Leah, they then have a kid. Guess who that kid's name is? Boom, Judah. You guessed it. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Pause. Let me tell you who Tamar is. Oh, my gosh. Let me tell you. Okay, so Judah, right? Let me tell you about Judah real quick. All right, so Judah, do you remember that story with Jacob in the Technicolor dream coat? And he, like, gets sold in in a well. Like, his, like, 12 brothers, like, ditch him and then, like, drop him in a well and then sell him to a bunch of people. And then he ends up in Egypt. Remember that story with Potiphar's life and all that fiasco? Well, the guy who came up with the idea to sell Jacob was Judah, Joseph, was Judah, right? Judah was the guy who's like, hey, brothers, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him. And all the brothers are like, yay. And so later on, Judah felt bad, and he went off, and he married a girl. So the, um, the girl that Judah married was this woman named Shua. Someone say Shua. Shua and Judah actually had an awesome marriage, and they had their first kid named Ur. Someone say Ur. Er, and then the second kid they had was Onan, Onan, and then the last guy, he got the bad, oh man, he got the worst name, his name is Shella, right, Shella, right, and so, so Er, Onan, and Shella, in that order, so Judah is like, oh yeah, this is my oldest son, and as is tradition, I got to marry him off first, so I'll go find a wife for him, and so he finds a wife for him, and her, and her name is Tamar, and so he finds Tamar to marry Ur, but Ur did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
So guess what God did? He killed them. And then, so God killed Ur, and so inch as tradition, you're supposed to pass the wife on to the next. <laughs> you know, you can, it, this still goes on right now in the Middle East. So Tamar goes on to Onan. Oh, yeah, Onan. This is a funny story, too. So Onan marries Tamar. Right, this is straight up like Jerry Springer, like backwoods stuff. So Tamar marries Onan. And Onan, and in this culture, well, the reason why the brother is supposed to marry this woman is to pass on the lineage of Ur, the oldest brother. But Onan doesn't want to pass on Ur's lineage. He wants to pass on his own. And the Bible says, um, well, <laughs> the Bible says instead of impregnating Onan, he spilled his seed on the ground. Now, this is not a gardening term of somebody who just tripped and dropped their bucket of seed, right? This is, <laughs> this is not a gardening term. So, Basically, Onan also did evil in the sight of the Lord by not impregnating Tamar purposely. So guess what? Onan got axed, right? So God killed Onan also. Gosh, man. So Judah says this, hey, Tamar, hey, Tamar, how about you live in my house with me and my wife, Shua, and when my youngest son, Shelah, gets old enough, you can marry him. But here's the thing. During this time... Judah's wife, Shua, dies. Uh-oh, can somebody say incest? All right. Um, so Judah, <laughs> so Judah ends up going on some sort of fishing trip with his boys, like far, like not far away, but far enough where you can walk. Um, so he goes on a fishing trip with his boys, and, and Tamar is like really like thirsty to get to have a kid. Right, because she, like in this culture, if you don't make a baby, like you're pretty much a disgrace. So she thinks, man, what if Shella does evil in the sight of the Lord? The only person I can trust is is um, Judah. So what she does is she goes out where Judah is fishing, dresses up like a prostitute, waits for Judah to come by, and boom, boom, she gets a customer. Right, and Judah is her customer, so she tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her, and she ends up having a kid. Ugh, Scandy. And the best part about this, if there's room for the unmoral people like Tamar, and if there's room for unmoral people like Judah in God's family, there's room for me. There's room for you. So Tamar ends up getting pregnant by being a pretend prostitute. And then later on in this genealogy, <laughs> Rahab shows up. Rahab is another woman. By the way, ancient uh, genealogies normally don't, normally don't mention women. And, and Matthew is like going way off the reservation on this one. Because this woman, see, Rahab is part of a, st of, of a bigger story. Remember Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt? And, you know, Prince of Egypt, like there's a cartoon in the 90s. Um, hopefully you guys have been born by then. Um, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and then passed the baton to his protege. And his name was 
Joshua, right, Joshua chapter 2, right? Joshua, you can read the story. Joshua sends some spies into a land where they're about to conquer. This was Jericho. And at the gates of Jericho, typically at a lot of gates of any large city during this time, you would always find prostitutes. Now, at this particular point, these two spies needed a place to stay. And guess where they ended up staying at? Rahab, the prostitute's house, right? She wasn't pretending this time. She was a straight-up prostitute, right? She was straight-up, like, this is her jam, right? Like, and, and the thing and the thing about this, right, the thing about this, right, you see prostitutes in Jesus' genealogy. You see pretend prostitutes, and you see unattractive people, and you see uh, scandalous uh, men as well. But Rahab, I'm always curious, what could have possibly gone on in Rahab's life to bring her to the point where she chose to make this her living? Like what, like what would have to happen? What kind of pain would she have to endure? What kind of view of herself and what kind of torment she may have gone through to allow herself to be an object? To be like, yeah, just to be an object. To be treated like that by men. And especially in this particular culture, very, very like chauvinistic culture. Like, she was probably the lowest on the totem pole. Like, this would be a disgraceful thing to put in any genealogy. Let alone Rahab ends up being the father or the mother of Boaz. You guys know who Boaz is? See, Boaz ends up, you know, owning a land, owning land, right? He's, he's kind of wealthy, which is ironic. It's crazy because, you know, Rahab and S- Solomon end up getting together and they have Boaz. And the thing is, in, in, in the book of Ruth, they tell the story about this guy named Boaz. And Boaz is actually pretty cool. But the ironic thing is who Ruth is. Because Ruth is the equivalent of somebody who's panhandling in front of Vaughn's during Christmas, because she was gleaning. You know what that means? I'll tell you, right? Gleaning simply means if you own this square foot of property and you're like growing tomatoes and you just happen, happen to grow a tomato on the outside because sometimes that's how, how, how you know, agriculture works. I wouldn't know, but I read books. And, right, the people who do not belong to you or homeless people or people who are panhandling and begging are allowed to glean off the side of your property. Does that make sense? And so you have a beggar who in society has no influence at all. And, 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 and Boaz ends up marrying Ruth. And Ruth gets to be who? The grandmother of King David. But Matthew doesn't want you to think King David is that awesome. See, David is known for two battles. One he won, the other one he lost miserably. See, King David is known for the first battle, which is the David and Goliath, right, where he chops the guy's head off, and he's like, yeah, I'm King David. Um, I think it went that way. And then the second battle that books books end his life is his battle against sexual immorality. And I like the way Matthew says it. He doesn't even say her name, not as a slight to her, but as a slight to David. He says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was 
Uriah's wife. Uriah's wife. Who's Uriah's wife, everyone? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Now, see, this is not an indictment on Bathsheba. This is an indictment on King David. Because Matthew wants everybody to know that David messed up. And we need to honor Uriah. Because what David did is he had an adulterous relationship with somebody's wife, Uriah's wife, and tried to cover it up by killing one of his best friends. Wow. The unfaithful, the immoral, the unpopular, the unattractive, all are in God's family. The comforting thing is, looks like there's room for you and me too. And I don't want you to miss this this Christmas. And if you're to learn anything from the Christmas story this year, the first thing you need to know is that if there's room for them, there's room for me. If there's room for them, there's room for you in God's family. See, this is not a fairy tale. It doesn't start as once upon a time. This is about a God who stepped into time and space to rescue you. The second thing I think we need to know. You know, I actually want to. Yeah, our second thing. Yeah, all right, cool. I just, and you know, this the clock is just ticking down. So the first thing you need to know is that there's room for all of us in God's kingdom. Because if there was room for them, there's room for you. The second thing that you need to know is that you have a little throne living inside you. You know what a throne is? Like a chair. <laughs> and whoever sits on that chair makes all the decisions. Right? Whoever sits on that chair has all the vision, all the hopes, all the dreams, and they are there to make plans and to dispatch orders, and things happen. Whoever sits on that throne has the right to manage your life, and all of us have a little throne living in our hearts. And so did King Herod. See, when we go from chapter one and we look at chapter two, we see a story of Jesus interacting with three groups of people, actually two groups of people, but one of them didn't show up for the party. Matthew chapter 2, it says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Probably one of the biggest understatement in the Bible. And when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where's the Messiah to be born? Verse 5. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for it is written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi over secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go search carefully for this uh, child. As soon as you find him, as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. 
After they had heard from the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Somebody say overjoyed. On coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented it to him. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem under two. Under two. Let me just tell you, King Herod, this is a historical piece. He ruled from 47 B.C. to 4 B.C. The Magi were people from the east, possibly from Persia, so which means they had to travel about a thousand miles to get there, right? Which is about three and a half months. We're not talking about a baby Jesus at this point. He's got hair and you know whatever, you know. So this is not a baby in in a in a in a cave type of situation, right? That's a different story you'll find in Luke. But but the Magi don't even show up till like three to four, even five months after this happens, possibly even later, because King Herod decides to kill. Everyone under two in Bethlehem. Now, remember, Bethlehem is not very big. It's a little town of Bethlehem, right? That's a song, I think. Um, So we're talking about 20 to 30 children being nixed, right? Which is still pretty bad. Imagine getting a knock on the door and be like, hey, we need to check out your son. Done, right? So that's what happened because Herod was a little paranoid. So the last thing you want to do to a king is show up, knock on his door, and be like, Hi, we're here to see the king. The king would be like, well, you're looking at him, right? right? The king would expect you to be talking about them. And, and the fact that you don't know who the king is is actually very disrespectful. And so you see these magis who are not Jewish, right? They're like wizards. They're like sorcerers. They're like Harry Potters. These guys are from like, you know, dang it, I'm going to really say something wrong here right now. But they're from Harry Potter land, right? These guys... They studied astrology. They know all the religions. In fact, they know even Judaism because they've stubborn, they studied Numbers 24, and they knew there was a star because they're, been, they're astrologers and say, whoa, new star? This is a tradition that they had and that they believed that whenever there was a star, it indicated the introduction of a king. So they knew this particular star correlated with this Jewish potential king. So they showed up to a place in, in um, Jerusalem, and they're like, where's the king? So they went to the palace where Herod exists, and they're like, um, are you a baby king? I don't think so. And, and Herod's like, oh, what king? You've got to think about this, though. If you're King Herod and someone comes looking for a king, you realize that means trouble. Because the only way kingdoms are ruled by kings is through intimidation, coercion, and power. So Herod is getting a little defensive. But people know this about Herod already. See, people know that when Herod is disturbed, people die. See, King Herod suffered... I don't know if he suffered, but he was notoriously um, paranoid. So much so that he killed his first wife. And he killed his wife's mother. He killed his mother-in-law because he thought that they would try to, like, take his kingdom. And he even got more paranoid and killed his three other sons. I mean, this guy was on a killing spree. 
because he was trying to protect his kingdom. And in fact, um, one of his contemporaries, Augustus, uh, the Roman emperor, uh, the Roman emperor, he said bitterly about this guy, King Herod. He said this. It was safer to be Herod's pig than it was to be Herod's son. Right. And that's a joke in their culture because the word pig and son is is the difference between hus and hoist. And so if you're a Greek, you'd be laughing like, Haha, it sounds so similar. Right. That's what would happen. When it comes to King Herod, you got a paranoid king who wants to protect his what? Throne. But there's three, there's four things that you need to know about thrones, and then I'll let you go. Four things. The first thing is that ancient thrones were occupied through power, influence, and coercion, and that's why Herod would be a little nervous. Secondly, there's a throne in all of our hearts, and whoever sits on the throne of our hearts has the power to make the decisions. And the thought of Jesus being the throne, being on the throne of your life might disturb you too. It might disturb you. And there may be parts of your life where you're like, I'm okay with Jesus as long as I'm on church, at church on Sundays and Easter and Christmas and New Year's. I might be okay with Jesus there, but I'm not okay with Jesus uh, in my dating life. I'm not okay with Jesus with my sexuality. I don't want Jesus be, to be the Lord of my life when it comes to my language or my drinking habits or my friends or my family or my career. But, but I'm okay with Jesus on Sunday. See, Jesus isn't the king of your life if he's not the king of your entire life. So don't fool yourself. Secondly, third thing, is that Jesus doesn't automatically occupy the throne of your life because he does not rule by intimidation. He rules only by invitation. See, just because you might have grown up going to church or you got baptized when you were a kid or you were born in a Christian family doesn't mean that Jesus automatically occupies your life. Romans 3.10 says this about the human heart, about the human life. Romans 3.10, it says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. No one. It's almost a hopeless Bible verse to read on Christmas. But the hopeful thing that I want to say about thrones, the last thing I want to say about thrones, is that Jesus only occupies a throne by invitation because John 1 12 says this yet to all who receive him yet to all who receive him the question that I want to ask is have you received Jesus because to all who receive him to those who believe in his name he gave the right to become children of God He's given us the right to become children of God, which means God will give you the right to be in his dysfunctional family tree if you receive him. Note three reactions in the story that we talked about. First, we see the wise men. When the wise men showed up to Jesus' door, what were they? They were overjoyed. They were elated, right? They traveled a thousand miles. 
not to get anything from Jesus, but to give him what he deserves as a king. The second group of people, they were already in Jerusalem. In fact, the the distance from Bethlehem, from the palace where Herod was at, you know how many miles that was? Five miles. And the chief priests, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they were only five miles away from Jesus. And guess who didn't show up at Jesus's door? These religious leaders were indifferent. See, it's really easy when it comes to Christmas time to be like, yeah, I know. We've done the Jesus thing for a while. Come to church. I know the Christmas story. I watched Charlie Brown Christmas. And you're and you are indifferent to the Christmas story. You're indifferent to the Christ in Christmas. It's just another X on your calendar. And the third person who did show up, but Jesus wasn't there. You know who it was? Herod. Herod showed up because he was disturbed. See, we all have thrones. And and if you have the courage to admit that you have a little Herod living in you, well, we can get some work done. Right? If you can admit that that Jesus is not on the throne of your life, then you can give it to him because he's not going to take it from you like most kings would. Right. If you can admit, if you can have the courage to admit that, yes, I got a dysfunctional life. Yes, I've been on the throne of my life. And yes, I need a savior. Jesus will come and save you and give you a new a new life. Like that's what needs to happen. But you have to first admit that you and you and you and me have a little Herod living in us, and only one person can occupy the throne of your life at a time. And if Jesus is not occupying the throne of your life, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. And may this Christmas be the best Christ-filled Christmas that you've ever experienced. But it takes courage to admit that we have a little Herod living in us. And we need a new king to graciously take over the throne of our lives. Remember, Jesus doesn't lead by intimidation. He will lead you only by invitation. So what I want you to know, I'll invite the band up. What I want you to know is that there's room for you and for me in God's family. There's room for you. There's room for me in God's family. And there's actually room for others in yours as well. Number two, I want you to to take courage. Have courage to admit that you're a sinner. And without Jesus' help, there is no chance at having the eternal life, the eternal hope, the eternal relationship that you ultimately desire, that your heart ultimately desires. And three, I want you to know that Jesus will wait for your invitation, because he's not going to coerce you. What I want you to do tonight, especially if you've never done this, I want you to come to Jesus. 
and give him the throne of your heart. Come to Jesus. Give him the throne of your heart. Is there any part of your life that you haven't given to Jesus? Or is, there, is there something in your life where you're like afraid to give to Jesus completely? Is there one thing? That's the thing that God wants. He's not going to take it by force. You have to invite him. So I want you to do right now is stand up. And maybe, maybe you know somebody, maybe you are unattractive, underprivileged, unpopular, uninfluential. I want you to come to Jesus because you belong in his family. And if you've made that decision, I want you to leave room in your life for the unattractive, the unpopular, the uninfluential, the underprivileged in your family. Whether that's Christmas dinner, whether that's Sunday, uh, next Sunday, Christmas Eve. But make room for the uns in your life. For the rest of us uns, I want to give you an opportunity to invite Jesus into your life. So I'm going to pray a prayer, and you can just pray this prayer. In fact, I want everybody to pray this prayer after me, just so that it kind of like covers up anybody who's for the first time. I don't want to embarrass anybody. So just pray this prayer with me if you want to give your life completely and wholly to Jesus. If you want Jesus to be the Lord of your life, you want one person to occupy, occupy the throne of your heart. Let's invite Jesus together. Let's say this. Lord Jesus, far too long, I've been indifferent about you in my life. I admit that I have sinned and I cannot save myself. I no longer want to be the captain of my ship or the master of my soul. Instead, I want you to be the leader, the king and captain of my life. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to earth and dying for my sins. Thank you for forgiveness and my new eternal family in you. In Jesus' name, we all said, amen.